few years ago, as I got to thinking about this being the traditional Sunday when we have our Ministerial Alliance Community Thanksgiving service, uh, I was scheduled to bring the message. This is about five or six years ago, and the, the Baptist Church was hosting at that particular year. And so since they were hosting that service, then they were in charge of printing the bulletins. So uh, probably Wednesday of that, I don't, I don't think it was because uh, uh, it's on a Sunday, but sometime uh, late in that week before, Jan, the, the secretary at the Baptist Church, called me and said, do you have a sermon title so she could print out the, the bulletins? And, uh, and I said, yes. I said, uh, the title of my Thanksgiving message is Rich and Thankful. And uh, I'll never forget her response. She said, you mean you can, you mean you can be both? You mean you can be both? And, uh, and I've never forgot that because I thought it was pretty insightful on her part because intuitively she knew what we all know, which is that most, most rich people aren't good at being rich, are they? Most rich people aren't good at being rich. And you would think, now, you would think that that wouldn't be the case because if someone has a lot that they would be thankful for that. Uh, but statistics disagree with that premise, and I thought it was interesting that Jan intuitively knew that. So at that moment, I decided if I ever preached this message again, that I would change the name. Just one slight little subtle change, and I put a question mark at the end of it. So instead of Rich and Thankful, the title of this morning's message is Rich and Thankful, okay? Because in many people's minds, being rich and being thankful are mutually exclusive things. You, you can be one or the other, but you can't be both. And that's simply not true. It's not easy to do. It's not an easy thing to do, but you can be both. And so uh, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because the way that we spend our money says more about us than anything else that we could do or say. You think about that. The way that we spend our money says more about us than anything that we could say or do. The thing that makes our money, listen, the thing that makes our money and how we spend it so important is because that is the quickest way and most tangible way of revealing what's important to us. All right? It, it, it shows where our priorities lie. It doesn't matter what you say is important to you. Let me look at your bank statement. Let me look at your checkbook. And then I'll tell you where your priorities lie. And see, Jesus knew this, which is why, and most people don't realize this, but Jesus talked a lot, a lot about money. In fact, Jesus talked about money more than he did heaven and hell combined. Jesus talked about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. One out of every four parables talk about money. Jesus talked about money. One out of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talked about money. Furthermore, statistics tell us that the single greatest cause, and you, but you know this, the single greatest cause of marital conflict, the, the biggest hot-button issue in every marriage is, guess what? It's money. It's finances. Couples fight about money more than anything else. Now, that's not news. All right, That's not news. Most people already know that. What most people don't know is that the amount of money fought over is irrelevant. In other words, poor people fight about money, rich people fight about money. Isn't that interesting, right? Low-income people fight over money, middle-income people fight over money, upper-class people fight about money, even stinking, filthy, rich people fight about money. And you're like, why? Because we're thinking if we had that much money, we'd be golden. You know, what is there to fight about, right? See, gee, but the fact that the amount of money is irrelevant only proves the point that most rich people aren't good at being rich. And here's why. The more money people make, the less they give away. And that's especially true here in North America. It is a fact. The more money people make, the less they give away percentage-wise. 
That's why God saw fit to put some instructions in the Bible for how to talk to rich people. And aren't you glad he did that? I'm going to tell you why you're glad here in just a second. It's found in an ancient document, a letter that actually uh, a guy by the name of Paul, he was a missionary back in uh, uh, the, the first century. And uh, he wrote this document, a letter to a young protege of his, a young man by the name of Timothy. And this young man, Timothy, was pastoring his very first church. So he was really green in understanding how ministry works. Like so many young pastors, he was kind of learning on the fly. So Paul decides to send some words of encouragement and instruction to this young pastor who's navigating his very first pastorate. But what's interesting about Timothy's first pastoral assignment is it was apparently a wealthy church, or at least had quite a few wealthy people in it. We discover that through Paul's instructions to Timothy, where he addresses specifically how to minister to rich people. Now, essentially, Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, when you talk to rich people, you need to talk to them in a certain way because rich people have their own issues. So Paul instructs Timothy in how to minister to these rich and wealthy people that Timothy's pastoring so that they'll really learn how to be good at being rich. So having said that, here's an idea for you. Rather than praying that you would get rich, a better prayer might be that God would help you be good at being rich. Because if you're good at being rich, you might have a better chance of being rich. All right? So just file that away. Because God can use people who are good at being rich, not so much those who aren't good at being rich. That's why it makes sense that God would have some specific instructions for rich people. Now, one thing about being rich is being rich has some strange, strange side effects. But you see, you already know that because because you know some pretty strange or odd rich people don't you? See, one of, the, one of the side effects of wealth is rich people live in denial, don't they? Rich people live in denial. How? Because rich people don't think they're rich, do they? I have yet to meet a rich person that said, yeah, I'm rich. No, rich people don't. See, this is like everyone knows someone who's rich, but no one's rich. That's kind of the world that we live in, right? Why is that? I mean, you you tell a short person they're short, they don't deny it. You tell a tall person they're tall, they don't deny it. You tell an organized person that they're organized, they don't deny it. But tell a rich person they're rich, no, I'm not. What's the denial about? It's funny how we'll fess up to most everything except being rich. Most rich people won't admit they're rich. George Gallup did a poll a few years ago asking people this question, what is rich? What is rich? The results came back indicating that the average American said, this is interesting, the average American said, if you made 150000 a year, you were rich. Now, this is only about four or five years old, okay? So 150000 most Americans say, yeah, you're rich. But if you were to ask who made 100, if you were to ask someone who made 150000 a year, are you rich, what do you think they'd say? No, it's, I'm not rich. I'm not rich. Then they surveyed people who made thirty to $35,000 a year what they considered to be rich. And the average answer was $75,000 a year. Again, if you were to ask someone who made $75,000 a year if they were rich, what do you think they would say? No, I, I, I ain't rich, right? Rich people have succumbed to one of the side effects of being rich, which is denial, which creates a world where nobody's rich, but everyone knows someone who is rich, right? So apparently somewhere out there in the world, there's this magic line that whenever you cross it, you're rich, but no one seems to know when they cross it. Maybe that's why rich people don't know how to act when they're rich, because they don't know they're rich. Which brings me to this next point. You do realize that if you made somewhere close to $45,000 this past year, 
you are in the top 1% of wage earners on this planet. Let me say that again. If you made close to $45,000 this past year, you're in the top 1% of wage earners on this planet. And isn't it interesting that when I just told you that if you made $45,000 last year that you were in the top 1% of wage earners on this planet, not a single person stood up and said, praise God, I'm rich. No one did that, right? I had no idea. When I got up to come to church, I had no idea I'm rich. But now I realize I'm rich. You know, not even two hours ago when I got up to leave my house to come to church and I got in my 98 Ford Ranger pickup with the crack in the windshield and the hole in the exhaust pipe and the check engine light that mysteriously came on three years ago and decided to stay on and my stained and skanky woven seat covers and the left front tire that has a slow leak. I never dreamed when I got in that pickup to come to church that I was rich. In fact, I just knew I was poor. I just knew I was poor. Same with you guys, right? When you got up this morning to get ready to come to church or watch church for our e-campus folks, when you tuned in this morning, you just knew you were poor. But now you found out different. You found out that you're actually rich, right? And see, the reason that you responded the way you did after being informed that you were actually rich, the reason your response was so underwhelming is because we don't feel rich, do we? We don't feel rich. That's, not, that's why not a single one of you jumped up and said, yippee, I'm rich, when I told you that 45000 a year made you in the top 1% of the world. And some of you, some of you are filthy stinking rich because you made about twice that, right? But since you don't think you're rich, you don't, you don't know how to act. Now, the other side effect of being rich, and this will shock some of you, but the other side effect of being rich is discontentment. Rich people are plagued by discontentment. Here's why. Accumulating stuff is like trying to satisfy an appetite. And appetites are never fully satisfied. You can never fully satisfy an appetite. In fact, what happens when you feed an appetite? It grows. It gets bigger. If you starve it, it shrinks. So I'm told. So I've heard, right? But here's, here's why this is important. Here's what rich people do. And look, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just warning you in case you ever become rich, okay? Rich people accumulate more stuff. So what happens, what, what happens to their appetite? Their appetite grows, right? That's why the more a person has, the more he or she wants. That's why rich people do this really strange thing. And you maybe have heard of this, but rich people do this thing called upgrade. Anyone heard that word upgrade before? Yeah, rich people do this thing called upgrade. Upgrade is where you have something that looks fine and it works perfectly well, but then you begin entertaining thoughts about getting another one that performs ex the exact same function, but maybe looks a little different because it's a little nicer and newer and maybe a little more expensive. So people upgrade and then they have two of those things. See, that's what rich people do because they have so much extra money. For example, and maybe you've heard of this too, but sometimes people will drive their car. Now think about this. You've probably heard of this. Sometimes rich people will drive their car that runs perfectly well onto a car dealer's lot and leave it there. And they'll take some money and they'll give it to the salesman. So now the dealer has their car and their money and they drive off in another car that did exactly the same thing as their old car did that they left on the lot. Isn't that interesting? Rich people do that kind of stuff, right? Here's another thing that rich people do. They'll walk into their kitchen, and, and I, <laughs> we've actually done this, so I'm preaching to myself here, but 
but we can justify it. We'll talk to you afterwards, all right? No, no. Here, here, here's another thing. Here's another thing that rich people do. Uh, rich people, they'll walk into their kitchen and in their kitchen that has countertops and refrigerators and microwaves and dishwashers and stoves and a sink, and they'll rip all that stuff out. I mean, just rip it all out, right? And guess what they replace that stuff with? Dishwashers and sinks and countertops. The same thing that they ripped out of there. I know, you've heard of this, haven't you? You guys know some rich people, don't you? Not only that, I know some rich people who will go to the mall. Think about this. I know some rich people who will actually go to a mall and wait in line, which is truly amazing because rich people don't like to wait in line. But sometimes rich people will go to a mall and wait in line outside of an Apple store to get a new iPhone. That's right. They'll pull out their iPhones and they'll text their friends on their iPhone 10 while they're waiting in line for their iPhone 12, right? And so then after that, after they get the 12, they got two iPhones. So they give their 10 to their kid who ends up breaking it, but it's all good because they had it insured and they came out ahead on the other end. That's what rich people do. Isn't that amazing? Y'all know anyone who's rich? Yeah. Here's another thing that rich people do. Rich people will actually go inside a closet They'll stand inside a closet full of clothes and they'll stare. And they'll stare at all those clothes and they'll stand there for a few seconds and then after a minute and they'll shove some hangers back and forth and then they'll step back and they'll say this, I don't have anything to wear. Rich people do that. Can you imagine that? I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy. And I've heard there are some rich women. Listen, I've heard, sir, there are some rich women that have nine, 10, even 20, 30 pairs of shoes, Sarah Clam, who will walk in their closet and say, I don't have any shoes to wear. And then here's the final thing. And I know I'm, I'm just warning you about these things because I don't want you to fall into this trap when you become rich. Another thing that rich people do is they'll gather up some of their stuff that they don't use. All right. It all still works fine, but they'll gather it up and they'll set up some tables in their front yard or in their garage and they'll put price tags on it and they'll sell it. They'll sell that stuff. And whatever they don't sell, they'll bag up and they'll take to a Goodwill store and get a tax deductible receipt. So then when they get home, they got all that more, much more room to buy more stuff to fill everything that they just got out of there. In this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, instructing him on how to talk to rich people. He goes right to the core, right to the epicenter of what rich people struggle with, beginning at verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Look at this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Question, how did Paul know how to say that? Why did he know to use that word arrogant? How did he know? Paul's saying here, he said, look, if you ever become rich, your inclination will be to become arrogant. Paul knew that. Have you ever met a rich, arrogant person? I'm surprised because I've met quite a few of them. In fact, more people than, more rich people than, than aren't, than not, are arrogant. They really are, right? The sad thing is, I sometimes wonder if we're not the ones to blame for their arrogance. Here, here, here's what I mean. You, you ever been in a group or a circle of people and, and there's one rich person among them? Isn't it interesting how everyone kind of flocks to, you know, everyone kind of hangs on every word that the rich person said. <clears throat> but the only high school reunion that I've ever attended was my 40th, but that was back in uh, uh, 2014. I'm 64, I'll do the math for you. But anyway, uh, but I, the only high school reunion I ever attended was my 40th. 
And there are a few people, a couple people in my, in my graduating class that have done very well for themselves financially. In fact, one guy actually was in on the ground level back when MTV, those of you that are old enough to remember MTV when it got started, one of my classmates was instrumental in helping get that started. But I thought it was interesting because a couple of people in my, in my graduating class that have succeeded, have done very well financially, all throughout the night, I just happened to notice that they always had a crowd of people around them. Those people, they always had it. And, and it, was, it was almost like, it was almost kind of sickening because it's almost like everyone was hanging on every word they said. Yeah, how many, how many of you old enough to remember the old E.F. Hutton commercial? Yeah, I'm, I'm aging my, yeah, Mike and me are probably the only ones that remember. You know, it's, it's an it's a investment firm. And anyway, E.F. Hutton was the name of it. And the, the story is that all these stockbrokers in a room says, but when E.F. Hutton talks, and everyone gets silent and they lean in. Listen. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. I think that's kind of that persona that we have about rich people. That, that people think that, 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 you know, because they made a lot of money that they're somehow rich or something like that. Now, you know, you may have become rich because of some smart or wise decisions you made, but getting rich didn't make you smarter. And I want you to know that so that when you get rich, you won't succumb to that inclination. One of the side effects of being rich is an inclination to think that you're smarter than other people. And this eventually leads to an inclination to think that you're better than others. And apparently this was the issue 2,000 years ago as well. How many times have you ever heard someone make this statement, or maybe you've ever, you know, maybe you've made this comment yourself about a rich person? They're worth a lot of money, but you would never know it. You ever heard someone make that statement? Yeah. They're worth a lot of money, but you would never know it. Why do we say that? Because generally speaking, if someone's rich, you know it. You know it, right? Because they'll let you know that they're rich. Even if they never said anything, it's the way they carry themselves, it's the car they drive, it's the way they drive, their snobbish body language. There's a lot of ways that rich people can let you know that they're rich without ever saying a word. And Paul's saying, look, if you're ever fortunate enough to become rich, either by luck or by hard work or intelligence or whatever, however it happened, if you ever achieve that status, once you cross that imaginary line of becoming rich, whatever that might be, once you reach that place of having more money than you need, don't let it go to your head. Don't let it go to your head. Don't become arrogant. Then, as they're all trying to figure out if they're rich or not, gosh, let's see, am I, is he saying I'm rich? Then Paul goes to the heart of the matter. This is what fuels this insatiable appetite that leads to arrogance. In, in verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Huge, huge statement, folks. Here's, what's, here's what Paul's saying. When you get that raise, that promotion, that Christmas bonus, when all of a sudden things are looking really good, something begins to happen to your hope. And the scary thing is we don't see it happening. We, we, we don't see this coming. It's not a conscious decision that we make. But as your lifestyle increases, your hope begins to migrate towards that accumulation of wealth are those things that you've purchased with the accumulation of wealth. And Paul tells us, he, Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, you need to warn those rich people not to let their hope migrate or let their hope move towards and become attached to and wrapped up with their money and possessions. Because that's what tends to happen. It's a very dangerous thing when people's hopes become attached to their money and possessions. The writer of Proverbs, a guy by the name of Solomon, who was richer and wiser and smarter than all of us put together, he made this observation about wealth. In Proverbs 18, verse 11, he said, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine, look at that huge word, they imagine because it's not true. They imagine because it's a pipe dream. They imagine because they're deceived 
They imagine it an unscalable wall. Here's what Paul's saying. When you start making more money and accumulating more possessions, as you move towards becoming rich, your hope slowly but surely begins to migrate towards your money and your possessions. And you begin to imagine that if there is an amount of money, all right, that you've accumulated, whatever that could be, that the walls surrounding you, your spouse, your family, your children, your grandchildren, your home, your job, would be so high and so strong that everyone would be set for life. But you imagine it because there is no figure out there that you'll ever reach that will ensure that. What they do is they think that they'll be able to save their way to total and complete safety. And in the process of saving, acquiring, and accumulating, their hope shifts to someone or something, their wealth. Now, I really kind of want to help you here with this to kind of help dial this in as far as making application. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question here. How much money, how much money would you need to secure your future against all imaginable eventualities? How much money would you need to secure your future where you would think, okay, I'm good to go now? How much money would it take for you to feel like you're set for life? Nothing could touch you, your family, your kids, maybe even your grandkids. How much money would you need to secure your future, enable you to weather any economic catastrophe that might arise? Let me answer that for you. The answer is more than you currently have. That's the answer. More than you currently have. Furthermore, the answer to this question will always be more than you currently have. Because as you begin to increase in wealth and your hope begins to migrate towards your money and your possessions, Here's how you begin to think, but what if? Doesn't matter how much you get saved up. Doesn't matter how much the 401k grows. At some point, you're going to think, but what if? Do you know why wealthy people tend to be stingier and less generous than poor people? Or think about it. Because poor people never place their hope in their wealth. Right? Poor people know that there's no point in trying to save their way to safety or security. Right? And if you ask a poor person to give you something or loan you something, usually not always, but usually they're more than willing to do so. Why? Because they know that $14.23 in their pocket isn't going to secure anything for them. Yeah, what do you need? Yeah, I've got a 10 bucks. What do you need? But the rich person whose hope has begun to slowly migrate towards their money and possessions, they deceive themselves into thinking that they can build this impenetrable unscalable wall that will protect them from any and every imaginable eventuality, even a pandemic. And the really intriguing thing is we actually do think that there's some unwritten, unspoken figure out there that once we reach it, that we'll be set. We, we do. All of us do. Solomon, the richest, wisest, smartest, sharpest man who ever lived said, that's just your imagination. That amount, that number, that figure doesn't exist. I remember reading an article one time where Warren Buffett, second richest man in America, worth $52 billion. Yeah, I said with a B. That, that, that's a B. $52 billion. Just for reference, here's the difference between a billionaire and a millionaire. A million dollars would be $50 bills stacked seven feet high. A billion dollars would be $50 bills stacked from the church parking lot out to the cemetery and back. That's the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. In Warren Buffett's case, 52 times, right? 
And I'm thinking, man, if a guy with that much money is concerned about the economy, where does that leave me, right? If you allow your hope to shift towards your money and possessions, what happens is you become a hoarder. Because in your mind, you'll never accumulate enough money or things, so your life will never be a never-ending pursuit of more money and more things. And every time you get to a certain number, you start asking that question, what if? Doesn't matter what number you set. If you ever reach it, at some point, you're going to start asking those questions. What if? What about? And then you reach the end of your life, and you still haven't reached that magic number, whatever it is, that puts you at that place of total and complete security and contentment. And sadly, we fail to realize that that place of contentment, it's elusive. It's our imagination. It doesn't exist because that figure is more than we'll ever have. And so as we become more wealthy, our hands begin to slowly close around and hold on to tighter to the things that we do have. And that'll make us a terrible rich person. Some of you don't consider yourselves rich yet, but your heart's already started migrating towards what little you do have. And Paul goes on, he tells Timothy to tell these rich people not to be arrogant or put their hope in riches and possessions, but in verse 17, but put their hope in God. Now, here's what's amazing. I mentioned earlier how much Jesus talked about money and how often the New Testament addresses the topic of money. You know why? You know why Jesus talks so much about money? Because the greatest competitor with your heavenly father is money. The chief competitor for your heart is money. See, look, ultimately, the battle for our soul doesn't come down to us to having to choose, you know, you know how much, how we spend our money. You know, that, you know we choose between Satan and God. You know, yeah, that, that's an easy decision to make. Our eternity, yeah, I'm, I'm going to choose God over Satan, right? For most of us, that's a no-brainer. Uh, let's see, who do I choose, uh, the devil or Jesus? Do I go with Satan or God? No, for most of us, that's not our struggle. For us, the greatest competitor for our allegiance to our Heavenly Father is money and possessions. Jesus himself made this statement one time. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. You hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that he wants our treasure because if he has our treasure, he'll have our heart and vice versa. And when our hope begins to migrate, and again, we never make this decision consciously. We just, we just gradually gravitate that way. But when our hope begins to migrate to wealth, then that becomes our substitute for God. Then, in what has to be probably the most brutally honest statements in the entire Bible, listen to what Solomon, the richest, smartest, wisest, sharpest man who ever lived, Listen to what he said. He asked God for two favors, and here they are. Well, look at this, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. First, this is, he's, he's praying this to God. He's praying to God. Help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Folks, that's an absolutely fascinating verse. You think about what he's saying there. The wisest man who ever lived was brutally honest here. He says, look, when it comes to wealth and possessions, there's an acquisition point that once it's reached will begin to drive you away from me, God, and, and I don't want that. I don't want that to happen. And the really scary thing is that acquisition point is different for everyone. 
It's like a sliding scale. It's going to be different for everyone. No one knows exactly where it's at or what it is. What's worse, we don't even know when it's happening. You just wake up one morning and all of a sudden you realize, man, it's been two and a half years since we've been to church. You didn't plan to do that. You just, your hope began to migrate. You didn't even realize it. That's what happens oftentimes when people acquire wealth and certain levels of worldly success. You're, you get so busy with your stuff that God slowly but surely gets pushed onto the back burner and eventually sometimes pushed off the stove entirely. Now, I want to help you get a glimpse of where you might be in this. So to kind of help you identify if your heart has migrated at all, I'm going to give you two statements. And I want you to be brutally honest with yourself in responding to these statements. Listen closely and see which statement creates the greatest anxiety, the most tension in you. And after giving you these statements, I'm going to give you a little broader context to kind of give us some handles to this message, okay? So two statements. Listen to these two statements and think of them from this perspective. If either one of these statements were absolutely true, which one would cause you the most concern, okay? First statement, there is no God. There is no God. When you die, that's all there is. Lights out, it's over. You're put six feet under. You'll never see your loved ones again. They'll never see you again. It's as if you never existed, right? There is no God. Statement number two, you have no money. You have no money. It's gone, all of it. You can't get it back. You have flatlined financially. Which one of those statements creates more anxiety within you? When you're pondering those statements, let, let, let me put them into a little bit different perspective here. Let's, let's say uh, you're in the ICU of a hospital, hooked up to all that stuff that we hope we never have to get hooked up to, and you overhear the doctor telling some of your family members who are standing close by, you overhear the doctor telling your family members that you're terminal, and barring a miracle, you have three to six months to live, now, which one of those statements, there is no God or you have no money, is more important to you? Because here's what will happen. Wherever your hope was before, it now shifts over to this issue, what happens when I die? What happens after I die? What happens after this life? Is there a God? Where will I spend eternity? Is there really a heaven? And if so, how do I get there? Will I ever see my loved ones again? Will there be anyone waiting for me when I get there? See, suddenly in that moment of crisis, when you're looking square in the eyes of death and eternity, all of a sudden priorities change, don't they? You got a different context on that. And no one has to tell you this. The past, I don't have to tell you that. I don't have to tell you, you know, that, hey, you know, you're at a, you're at a crossroads here, Right? No one has to tell you that, whether you're an atheist or not, whether you grew up in the church. Suddenly, 110% of your hope is going to be in God at that point. So here's my question. Here's Paul's point, and here's what Jesus said over and over and over. If your hope is going to be in God at the end of your life, when everything's, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, all right, everything's kind of peeled away, what's important is the only thing left. If your hope is going to be put in God at the end of your life, whenever that might be, why not put your hope in God at the beginning of your life or at the middle of your life or even right now, right? If your hope's going to be in God at the end when you have no control over what happens next, 
why not put your hope in God here at the middle of your life when you still have no control over what happens next, right? What's the difference? What's the difference, people? Paul goes on. He tells Timothy to tell rich people to put their hope in God in verse 17, who richly provides us with everything for our surprise, enjoyment. Look at that. Our enjoyment. God actually wants us to enjoy life. Sure, absolutely. Go ahead and get that iPhone 12. Go ahead and get those new cabinets and granite countertop. Go ahead and get that new pickup, right? Just that God's okay with that. Just don't let your hope migrate to that. You see that? It's not that God's opposed to us getting those things. He just doesn't want those things to get us. That's the difference there. Why would you put your hope in riches when the things that riches can actually help is so minute compared to the things that really matter to you in this life. And when it's all said and done, it's like Dr. Tony Evans said, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you, folks. You can't take it with you. And here's what happens when our hope begins to migrate. Two things begin to happen. We become ungrateful and we become entitled. Actually, there's three things. We become ungrateful, we become entitled, and thirdly, we become ugly. We become ugly. You know this. You don't like being around people who are ungrateful and entitled, do you? Because they're ugly people. They're not pleasant to be around. If you put your hope in riches instead of the one who richly blesses, you're going to become ungrateful. And then you're going to become entitled. And then you're going to become an ugly person who no one wants to hang around with. And then at the end of your life, you're going to become a hypocrite because you're going to call for the priest or the pastor. And then you're going to want to put your trust in the one who richly blesses. And the good news is, listen, the good news is God's gracious. God forgives. The bad news is you'll never be able to come back to this day. You'll never be able to come back to this day, to this moment. You'll never be able to relive all those days you wasted by putting your trust in riches. You'll never be able to go back and relive your 30s or 40s or 50s. You'll never get another opportunity to parent your children again. You're not going to get those back ever. But here's what you need to know. God loves you. God forgives you. But if you spent the most productive years of your life chasing something you'll never catch, trying to save your way into a safe place that doesn't exist, trying to build those unscalable walls that Solomon talked about, all the while, all the while alienating those closest to you, then at the end of your life, cry out to God declaring, oh God, my hope is in you. When you can be rich and thankful now in this life, by putting our hope in the one who richly blesses, not the riches. Let me pray for you. Father God, I do. Uh, we thank you, Father, for making us rich. We didn't know that when we came, and now we know. So thank you, Father, for making us rich because we truly are blessed in so many different ways. So thank you for blessing us, Lord. And, and to whatever degree, to whatever degree that we have allowed our hope to migrate to our things or our money, even those things that you've blessed us with, to whatever degree we have allowed our hope to migrate towards those things, forgive us for that as well. And from this day forward, with your help, we choose to put our hope in the one who richly blesses. And Lord, if there's anyone watching here in person or even from our eCampus church, our live stream, either way, if there's anyone watching and they're not in a right relationship with you, God, and they know it, it would be my honor to help them take that next step of getting back in a right relationship with you. 
So if that's you, if you'd be willing to just pray this simple prayer with me, just say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm not where I should be in my relationship with you. And as I look back on my life, I think maybe I have allowed some of my hope to migrate to some of the things that, I've, that you've blessed me with. I didn't realize it, but forgive me for that, Lord. But I'm asking you now to forgive me of the sins and the things I've done, the things I've said that have separated me from you and your plan and purpose for my life. Thank you, Father, for giving your life, for sending Jesus to give his life for me. And now I give my life back to you. Come into my heart by your Holy Spirit and live inside of me and help me to begin to live my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name.